Douglas Stewart hits the nail on the head. He understands exactly what we're supposed to be seeing here. He says, worship is the first most basic response of a true believer to the true God, closed quote. I think that is exactly and obviously right. The overwhelming impression on the reader over the next 16 chapters will be the sense that worship matters. In fact, if you're a note taker, that would be a very appropriate title for this entire section. Welcome to Into the Word with Paul Carter. I'm your host, Woody Woodland. Worship matters. I love that as a title for this section. I love that for the next 16 weeks, we are going to be talking about worship in one fashion or another. Worship is the first and most basic response of a true believer to God. So this is the sweet spot and the center of it all. Here to get us started on that conversation is our Bible teacher at Into the Word, Pastor Paul Carter. Your word is a lamp unto my feet. If you have your Bible with you, I'd love for you to open it now to Exodus chapter 25. Once again, it may be helpful for us to zoom out before we zoom in. Sometimes the trees make more sense after seeing the forest as a whole, and I think that will be the case again here. I've mentioned several times that the book of Exodus has essentially two sections. The first section tells the story of redemption that runs basically from chapter 1 through the end of chapter 19. Then the second section explains in detail how these saved people ought to live with and for the Lord. It's the same basic structure that we see in several New Testament epistles. In Paul's letter to the Ephesians, for example, there are three chapters talking about what God has done to secure our salvation. And then there are three more chapters explaining in detail how we ought to live and conduct ourselves as saved people. Same idea here. In chapter 25, we are six chapters deep into that second section. We've had six chapters of law, six chapters of principle and application, but now we begin to enter into a remarkably detailed discussion about worship. There are going to be 13 chapters about worship, seven chapters providing instructions related to the construction of the tabernacle and the various components of it, and then six chapters detailing the actual construction of those items. That's a huge block of content. It'll be broken up by a three-chapter-long discussion of Israel's idolatry and God's response. We'll get to that. But for now, I just want you to see that ratio. I want you to see the size and shape of this section of the forest. 13 of the next 16 chapters are going to be talking about worship. Douglas Stewart hits the nail on the head. He understands exactly what we're supposed to be seeing here. He says, worship is the first most basic response of a true believer to the true God, closed quote. I think that is exactly and obviously right. The overwhelming impression on the reader over the next 16 chapters will be the sense that worship matters. In fact, if you're a note taker, that would be a very appropriate title for this entire section. Hear now the word of the Lord, beginning at verse 1. The Lord said to Moses, Speak to the people of Israel that they take from me a contribution. From every man whose heart moves him, you shall receive the contribution for me. 
And this is the contribution that you shall receive from them. Gold, silver, and bronze, blue and purple and scarlet yarns, and fine twined linen, goat's hair, tanned ram skins, goat skins, acacia wood, oil for the lamps, spices for the anointing oil, and for the fragrant incense, onyx stones and stones for setting, for the ephod and for the breastpiece. And let them make me a sanctuary that I may dwell in their midst. Exactly as I show you concerning the pattern of the tabernacle and all of its furniture, so you shall make it. At the end of chapter 24, we're told that Moses went back up the mountain and he was there for a total of 40 days and 40 nights. Here, we're being told that during that time, God was giving Moses a series of instructions related to the construction of the tabernacle. As I said already, the vast majority of the next 16 chapters are going to be devoted to the tabernacle in one way or another, and that is appropriate. J. Alec Matier says here, the tabernacle could make a strong bid to be the greatest of all biblical visual aids. Closed quote. I think that's a very useful way of thinking about the tabernacle. It was never intended to be thought of as a house for God. Rather, it was intended to symbolize God's presence among the people. The main point being made here is that God intends to dwell among us. At the end of Genesis 3, there is, of course, a huge gap between God and people. But the tabernacle suggests that God is not content with this gap. He is making a way. He is establishing contact. And of course, this trajectory will land ultimately and climactically upon the person and work of Christ. In John 1.14, the Bible says, And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. The Greek word translated as dwelt there is eskenosen, and it literally means tabernacled or tented. Jesus is God dwelling with his people. That was the miracle of the incarnation, and that is the ultimate glory of the consummated kingdom. In Revelation 21, the Bible says, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them. and They will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. Close quote. That's the same Greek word, as found in John 1.14, God is going to tabernacle with his people for all eternity. So what was begun in Exodus 25.8 is consummated in Revelation 21.3. This is a thread that runs throughout the entirety of your Bible. And this is one of the reasons we read the Old Testament, because it helps us understand what God is doing through the life and death of Jesus Christ. If you don't understand the centrality of the tabernacle in Old Testament theology, you will not understand or properly appreciate the ministry and the majesty of Jesus. So all of that to say, the tabernacle is really important. And so job one is assembling all manner of rich and valuable resources. 
Thus, an invitation is extended to all God's people to contribute. Now, of course, this isn't the first mention of giving in the law. Back in chapter 23, when God was talking about the Feast of Unleavened Bread, he said, none shall appear before me empty-handed. So giving was woven into the rhythm and fabric of Old Testament worship. At some point, God willing, we'll have to do a topical episode attempting to tie together all of what the Bible says about giving. But for now, it is enough for us to notice that, once again, God invites people to give. And he wants them to want to give. And we should notice, too, that this offering was intended to build up and maintain the house of worship. Hey, Pastor Paul, I want to jump in here for a second. I imagine that for some people, this feels like a little bit of a letdown. Off the top, I said that for 16 weeks, we're going to be talking about worship. And now, wait a second, here we are talking about giving, which is actually, you know, giving is part of what it means to worship Old Testament and New. So maybe this is a good place for us to be starting? Yeah, absolutely. But I also understand what you're feeling. Sometimes giving is talked about in a manipulative way or in a mechanical way, as if we can get more from God if we give more to God. Right. Kind of like the send your check today for $500 to my ministry and receive the healing you've been praying for today. It, it scares me how good you are. At that. But that, that, <laughs> that was going through my mind as well. But, but of course, that's the exact opposite of what we see in the Bible. In the Bible, giving is a response to what God has done not a way to get God to do things he hasn't yet done. Yeah, I love that quote you gave from Douglas Stewart off the top. It says, Worship is the first, most basic response of a true believer to the true God. Keyword there, response. Yeah, true biblical religion is all about response. We love because he first loved us. We give because he gave to us. That's the essence of the difference between Christianity and paganism. Uh, do you remember the story of Elijah and the prophets of Baal? Yeah, I guess that's the one where the lightning comes down from heaven and burnt up the sacrifice, right? Yeah. But at the heart of that story, you may recall, there was a challenge that Elijah threw down before the people. He said, how long will you go limping between two different opinions? If the Lord is God, follow him. But if Baal, then follow him. The people of Israel at that time were actually pretty divided between the worship of Yahweh and the worship of Canaanite deities such as Baal. So Elijah throws down that challenge. He says, you, you get your pagan priests up here to pray to their deity, and I'll pray to Yahweh, and whoever answers, that will be our God moving forward. And everyone thinks that's a great idea. So they set up two altars, one for Yahweh, one for Baal, and they put a sacrifice on both the altars. Yeah, and then doesn't Elijah tell them to douse his sacrifice with water just to ump the ante? Yeah, he has them dump water on the animal, the altar. He even has them dig a trench around the altar, and he has them fill that up with water as well. And then Elijah just kind of leans back in the easy chair and takes it easy for a bit. When the time comes, he's just going to pray and ask God to reveal himself to his people. But the prophets of Baal, they're, they're working overtime to try and manipulate their God into showing up. They're dancing around the altar. They're shouting at the top of their lungs. And Elijah starts making fun of them. He's like, maybe your God is having a nap. He says, maybe you need to <laughs> shout louder. So 1 Kings 18, 28 to 29 says, And they cried aloud and cut themselves after their custom with swords and lances until the blood gushed out upon them. And as midday passed, they raved on until the time of the offering of the oblation, but there was no voice. 
No one answered. No one paid attention. So they actually cut themselves and injured themselves in order to try to get Baal's attention? Yes. You see, in pagan religion, the gods are not interested in people. In most pagan religions, the story is that the gods created human beings as their slaves. The job of humans is to offer them sacrifices, build them temples, sing their praises. The gods feel no obligation to do people any favors. So if you need a favor, then you have to do something loud and crazy and extravagant to get their attention. It's all about bargaining or manipulating the gods into doing what they don't actually want to do. But biblical religion is the opposite of that. In the Bible, we don't pray like that because we don't believe like that. So in the Elijah story, he just prays a very simple, straightforward prayer, and God answers. Fire falls, the people are convinced, and the prophets of Baal are executed for the liars and deceivers that they had been. But there were no theatrics. There was, there was no trick. And that's why Elijah did the thing with the water. He wanted it to be very clear that there was no trickery. This is just a simple prayer and an answering God. And so the point is, giving in the Bible is not to make God do something. Rather, giving is one of the ways we respond to what God has done for us. So in this story, people are responding to the Exodus, I imagine, right? They were slaves. God set them free. And so they wanted to respond to that by giving to the construction of the tabernacle. Is that right? Yes. And look at what they gave. Exodus 25 talks about gold, silver, bronze, fine cloth, oil, spice, and precious stone. Where in the world do you think a bunch of slaves would have come by items such as those? Well, of course, they were given those things by the Egyptians. Back in Exodus 12, verse 35, it says, The people of Israel had also done as Moses told them, for they had asked the Egyptians for silver and gold jewelry and for clothing. And the Lord had given the people favor in the sight of the Egyptians so that they let them have what they asked. Thus, they plundered the Egyptians, close quote. So God put it on the heart of the Egyptians to give them gold, silver, clothing, and other precious commodities. God did that. He so overawed the Egyptians that they wanted to speed the Israelites out of the land lest they be entirely consumed and destroyed by any further plagues. So the point is, all of this treasure actually came from God in the first place. They weren't really giving him anything. Rather, they were simply returning a portion of what God had given to them. So again, God always goes first. In true biblical religion, we don't give to get. Rather, we receive first. And even what we give to God by way of thanks is really just a portion of what he has given to us already out of his bounty, grace, and generosity. Yeah, that's awesome and puts the whole conversation about giving in a more appropriate context. I know we'll be coming back to that in future episodes for sure. Yeah, absolutely. There is a lot about giving in this section on worship, which I think is a bit of a message or a correction in and of itself. A lot of Christians today say they love worship. Oh, how, oh, we love worship. But what they really mean is that they love music. But there's not a ton of music in this section. But there's a lot of giving. So maybe our conversation in the church today needs to shift a little bit. Mm, yeah, I suspect you're right. Let's jump back into the story now at verse 10. They shall make an ark of acacia wood. Two cubits and a half shall be its length, a cubit and a half its breadth, and a cubit and a half its height. You shall overlay it with pure gold, 
inside and outside shall you overlay it, and you shall make on it a molding of gold around it. You shall cast four rings of gold for it, put them on its four feet, two rings on the one side of it, and two rings on the other side of it. You shall make poles of acacia wood and overlay them with gold, and you shall put the poles into the rings on the sides of the ark to carry the ark by them. The poles shall remain in the rings of the ark, they shall not be taken from it, and you shall put into the ark the testimony that I shall give you. Now, you might wonder why this long series of instructions begins with instructions on building the Ark of the Covenant. Wouldn't it be more logical to build the tent first and then build the things that go inside? But the order here is intentional. Nahum Sarna explains, It is the Ark and its contents, the symbol of the covenant between God and Israel, that give meaning to the tabernacle. For the religio-moral imperatives of the Decalogue constitute the foundation of Israelite society, closed quote. So the law was the heart and center of Israelite culture and identity, and therefore the ark, which was built to house the law, must be the heart and center of the tabernacle. That's the idea. That's the symbolism behind this order. By the way, this symbolism is reflected in most Protestant church architecture today. Protestant churches tend to put the emphasis on the pulpit, where the word of God comes forth, in the same way that the tabernacle put the emphasis on the ark, the place where the law of God was stored. Same idea, Old Testament and New, to know the Lord is to hear his word. Thanks be to God. Verse 17, you shall make a mercy seat of pure gold. Two cubits and a half shall be its length, and a cubit and a half its breadth. And you shall make two cherubim of gold, of hammered work shall you make them, on the two ends of the mercy seat. Make one cherub on the one end, and one cherub on the other end. Of one piece with the mercy seat shall you make the cherubim on its two ends. The cherubim shall spread out their wings above, overshadowing the mercy seat with their wings, their faces one to another. Toward the mercy seat shall the faces of the cherubim be. And you shall put the mercy seat on the top of the ark. And in the ark, you shall put the testimony that I shall give you. There I will meet with you. And from above the mercy seat, from between the two cherubim that are on the ark of the testimony, I will speak with you about all that I will give you in commandment for the people of Israel. Now, there is some disagreement among scholars as to how best to translate the Hebrew word used in verse 17, translated by the ESV there as mercy seat. The object is called in Hebrew kaporet and literally means to cover. It is literally the lid for the chest that is the Ark of the Covenant. While it may be appropriate to import themes of atonement here, the emphasis in this passage is actually on communication. What the text says is that God will meet with Moses here. The you in verse 22 is singular. So God's going to meet with Moses and speak to him from above the lid or cover of the ark between the two cherubim. Now later, it would be the high priest who would meet with God and possibly hear from God in this location. The original symbolism then would seem to be that the voice of God comes from the law 
and through his appointed messengers. The cherubim were heavenly messengers. They carried the voice and will of God from heaven to the realm of men. So whatever later symbolism was added, the main idea here seems to be a promise of communication and revelation. Thanks be to God. Verse 23. You shall make a table of acacia wood. Two cubits shall be its length, a cubit its breadth, and a cubit and a half its height. You shall overlay it with pure gold and make a molding of gold around it. And you shall make a rim around it a hand breadth wide and a molding of gold around the rim. And you shall make for it four rings of gold and fasten the rings to the four corners at its four legs. Close to the frame, the rings shall lie as holders for the poles to carry the table. You shall make the poles of acacia wood and overlay them with gold. And the table shall be carried with these. And you shall make its plates and dishes for incense and its flagons and bowls with which to pour drink offerings. You shall make them of pure gold. And you shall set the bread of the presence on the table before me regularly." The table described here was located on the north side of the holy place in the tabernacle. The tabernacle had three zones. We talked about how Mount Sinai itself had three zones. And we see that in the tabernacle design as well. These are, in descending order of holiness, the holy of holies, the holy place, and the court. This table was located in zone two, the holy place. The main function of the table was to accommodate the bread of the presence. Further instructions about this bread can be found in Leviticus 24, 5 through 9. We jump back into the text at verse 31. You shall make a lampstand of pure gold. The lampstand shall be made of hammered work. Its base, its stem, its cups, its calyxes, and its flowers shall be of one piece with it. And there shall be six branches going out of its sides three branches of the lampstand out of one side of it, and three branches of the lampstand out of the other side of it, three cups made like almond blossoms, each with calyx and flower on one branch, and three cups made like almond blossoms, each with calyx and flower on the other branch. So for the six branches going out of the lampstand. And on the lampstand itself, there shall be four cups made like almond blossoms with their calyxes and flowers, and a calyx of one piece with it under each pair of the six branches going out from the lampstand. Their calyxes and their branches shall be of one piece with it, the whole of it a single piece of hammered work of pure gold. You shall make seven lamps for it, and the lamps shall be set up so as to give light on the space in front of it. Its tongs and their trays shall be of pure gold. It shall be made with all these utensils out of a talent of pure gold. And see that you make them after the pattern for them, which is being shown you on the mountain. The lampstand was on the south side of zone two, the holy place. So we have the Ark of the Covenant in zone one, the Holy of Holies. Then we have the table and the lampstand in zone two, the holy place. The table on the north side and the lamp on the south side. The lamp was constructed to look something like a cross between an almond tree and an olive tree and was believed to symbolize, in some sense, the tree of life. Thus, God is saying here that eternal life 
is not off the table. Remember, the people did not come into the holy place. The priests went into the holy place, but the people knew that the lampstand was in there, so there was hope. The lampstand also likely represented the witness of God in and through his people. Now, we don't know exactly what it looked like. We often think of the menorah on the Ark of Titus in Rome, but most scholars now think that this was an artist's conception and not actually based upon the lamp that was in the temple at the time, given the descriptions we have, both here in the Bible and in extra-biblical sources like Josephus. Regardless, it was a lamp that looked like a tree and that was built based on a pattern which was shown to Moses on the mountain. It was a reminder that the light of the Lord had not been extinguished by the darkness of human sin and was, in fact, even now, breaking forth afresh into the world. Thanks be to God. Pastor Paul, I love the imagery of the light of God shining forth even in a dark and fallen world. Yeah, me too. And that's the message of the Bible, isn't it? The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it, John 1, 5. Yeah, praise God for that. And as always, friends, if you are looking for more Bible teaching from Pastor Paul, you can find that over at the Into the Word website at intotheword.ca. Or you can download the Into the Word app at the iTunes Store or on Google Play. And don't forget, tune in to Life 100.3 next Sunday morning for the next chapter in our journey together through the whole counsel of God. We'll see you then. Your word is a lamp unto my feet.